Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone, and welcome to Built Not Born episode 67. Today's guest is Dr. Kara Ui. Kara Ui is a sleep physician and psychiatrist practicing in Toronto, Canada. Kara works with teens with insomnia. She delivers a modified version of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia called CBTI. Kara was the host of the Find the Eight podcast, where she breaks down sleep concepts and strategies in 10 minutes or less. Kara joins us today to discuss her latest project called Decode Insomnia, where she provides us some awesome tips on how teens and also adults can deal with insomnia find different tools and resources on how to get that great night's sleep so you could be your best self, not just for you, but for the people that rely on you. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button. We have a bunch of awesome interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kara Ui on how to decode insomnia. And remember, Life is built, not born. Dr. Kara Ui, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to have this chat. So Kara, I think it was 13 months ago, a little over a year, we sat down for the first time. You were on the show, episode number 10, titled it The Art of Sleep. You gave amazing ideas on the importance of sleep, how to sleep, tactics, strategies. We spoke about your first project, Find the Eight your podcast series, which I found very helpful. I listened to all the episodes and it was awesome. Now, Kara, you're back with your next project, Decode Insomnia. Tell us about it. Sure. So just a little bit of background for your listeners. I am a sleep physician. I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist. And right now my work primarily is in teen insomnia. So I work with teens with insomnia as well as with sleep timing issues. That's really common in the teen years, as well as their parents. So that's what I do for my clinical work. And I do that work because first of all, sleep issues, you probably know this as a parent of teens are really, really common in the teen years. And we actually have a lot of really great non-medication strategies for insomnia that work really well and quite quickly in the adult years. But in my experience, some teens can, can benefit, but most of them can't. And it's for a few different reasons. I think sleep is a lot trickier in the teen years but there are a lot of other factors that make it difficult for them to access those strategies. And so I've really been working for quite some time to figure out a better solution for teens so that it can actually access all of those powerful interventions. And in addition to that, in addition to trying to figure out a better solution for teens, I've also found that starting with sleep, whether it was in my work as a psychiatrist or my work as a sleep physician, was this very, very powerful way to get started with teens. I often find it's easier to get in the door with many teens. As an example, you know, if there's other stuff going on, like depression or anxiety, not all teens, but many teens don't actually want to talk about that stuff, especially not right at the beginning. But most teens are pretty happy to talk about their sleep. And so it's a way in. And also a lot of the stuff that we do for sleep, not only does sleep directly improve other things like mood and anxiety, but also the strategies and the skills that you use in terms of getting sleep on track translate to helping with mood and anxiety. And also because of that thing that I mentioned before, that you can get 
these interventions work quite quickly. Mm-hmm. That is huge because especially in the teen years who are more focused on the short term, yeah. if you can help them get change faster, that can fuel a sense of agency. It can fuel mm-hmm. motivation. It gives them energy, literally physical energy to do other things. And it gives them that confidence that they're actually able to shift things. That's a big one I find for me. A lot of teens that I've worked with, they often don't have this belief that change is actually possible. And so then they avoid doing the stuff that's going to be helpful. And so for all these reasons that I've gone on a long tangent for, that is what Decode Insomnia is about. I have a program that I've both delivered in person, but also now it's an educational online program. I have a bunch of different resources. And then I also have a podcast that's more geared towards the parents Mm -hmm. that is actually not focused on sleep, but focused on helping teens navigate difficult changes. With your background in sleep and you're a sleep expert, I find sleep, just from my personal experience and just reading books and trial and error, I, I list four things to get your physical health right. And these are the order I put it in. I put sleep number one, hydration number two, diet number three, and then exercise number four. And they're all extremely important. But I rank in that order. If you took one away, what would affect you and kill you first? Let's go backwards. Exercise. I know people haven't exercised in 40 years. They're still alive. They're in horrendous shape. Exercise is important, but it's going to kill you 50 years from now, 20 years from now, not today. Diet. I know people that have eaten horrendously for decades, still alive. They're overweight, but they might have some health problems, but they're still alive. They're still rolling. But then you get more to the here and now, hydration. You can only go a short distance, not keeping your body hydrated. If you stop drinking water, I think you probably have a few days at most. You go to sleep. You take anyone I know and take one day of sleep away from them. It's like, you can't sleep tonight. They're literally drunk the next day. And then you take the second night of sleep, they're hallucinating. They can't even like tie their shoes after two days in their sleep, right? Let's go with sleep. Teenagers, what are some of the common situations teenagers get themselves into that affect their sleep, that give them problems with a good night's sleep? So I'm always talking about how the teen years are a perfect storm for insomnia. And there's a really classic pattern that I see over and over again that occurs in the teen years because of the fact that teens' body clocks run later and how that conflicts with the fact that they have to wake up early for school. So this is what happens in the teen years. Typically, the body clock starts to run about two hours later when they go through puberty. And what that leads to is that they can't get to sleep on time because our bodies just don't want to sleep at that time. And then they're having to wake up one, two, three, four hours, depending on the timing of their clock. They're having to wake up much earlier than they actually want to. And so what this leads to is then having to often sleep in on weekends, which is completely normal teen behavior, often nap after school. And then those things can then push the timing of the clock back later or when you can expect sleep to a later time. And so then it becomes this really vicious cycle where teens are getting increasingly sleep deprived. They have to compensate by doing things like sleeping in and napping. And then it actually just fuels even more difficulties with getting a good night's sleep at night. Mm -hmm. So going back to what you said about what are the common traps or the common problems, I think one big one is that teens are often trying to get into bed too early or trying to sleep too early. Mm-hmm. And their bodies just aren't ready for sleep at that time. And so that can lead to the snowball effect where they get more anxious and they get more frustrated because they're not sleeping. They attach meaning to the fact that they're not able to sleep. Like, I just can't sleep. I'm a bad sleeper, even though it was actually more of a matter of timing and their body mm-hmm. just not yet being ready for sleep. So that's a really big one. 
And what happens actually, another big thing that why that's so problematic is that then they spend hours a week in bed. And a really big thing that tends to drive sleep issues and insomnia is that they start to pair bed with essentially being in kind of awake, difficult to settle mode, as opposed to pairing it with sleepy, able to settle easily mode. Yep. We've, I think we've talked about this before, but yeah. that's a really big one. So that's a common trap. And then I've already alluded to the fact that sleeping in or catching up on sleep, napping, that's a common trap too, but that one's tricky because there's a reason why they're doing it, right? They're so sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. So it's often a matter of more understanding the costs of those behaviors. And that's a really common trap I find that people fall into. Two questions, one on naps and one on stim before bed, naps. So what's your thought? Tell me if this is right or wrong. That 10, 15 minute nap is magic. But then if you go longer, you go into that REM and you wake up feeling worse than you did before. What's the science on that? Yeah. So that might be part of it, right? Kind of where you're waking up in terms of your sleep cycles, but it's also just duration and the amount to which you are depleting your sleep drive. So it depends on the person. Some people they're fine with 15, 20 minute nap. Whereas other people, even a short nap like that can impact their ability to build up enough of that pressure or drive for sleep. So it depends a little bit. And so oftentimes it is about doing some experimentation and seeing what works. Yeah. So you said that one of the ways that this teens get in trouble is they go to bed too early. Like they don't have that sleep potential yet. That sleep drive didn't build yet. And the bed not, doesn't become a place to sleep. It becomes a place to hang out. Maybe the last hour of their day, the teens are so big into the phone and video games and they're playing Xbox at night and they play for an hour and a half. What happens when sleep potential meets STEM? What happens yeah. there? So it's often both right? It's often a combination of two things. So yeah. I I talk a lot about, I have a framework that I use called the decode framework and everything basically that can drive difficulties with being able to sleep and difficulty settling down are on that framework. There are nine things, but they can bro- be broken down into these two major categories, which you essentially alluded to. One of them is actually just simply it's not the right time to sleep yet. They don't have the potential to sleep yet. But then of course, there's all these other things that even when you do have that potential, make it difficult for your body to wind down or power down. So I'm finding that teens often have both because of teen years, they often are, you know, they just don't have the ability to sleep yet until later. But then also, of course, we've got all these other things things that can stimulate us for sure, the screens, but then of course, all the other stuff, right? Having busy mind, stress coming up at nighttime, caffeine, right? There's a whole bunch of other things. And I call those things sleep blockers, because even if you're ready for sleep, your body may not be able to get there because of all these things that are stimulating you. Could you go over what are some common sleep blockers you see that teens struggle with? Sure. Yeah. So from that framework, we've already talked about a few of them, but definitely uh, screens. And part of that is the stimulation, right? Of just, it's an engaging screens and the internet. They're very interesting and engaging. Also, you're getting the light. So you have the light and, you know, light really can impact sleep three to five hours before sleep onset. And that has to do with the fact that light typically suppresses melatonin production. And so there is light, there's stimulating activities, there's stuff in your that you're maybe putting into your body. So that can be caffeine or other substances or certain foods that are activating. And then there can, of course, be environmental factors that can block you from being able to settle. One that we talked about just now was that idea that the bed has become paired with not being able to settle. So that's a really big sleep blocker. And then that overactive mind, right? For many people, that's when the mind gets busy in the teen years, even more so. That's when most teens tend to be really introspective and they tend to process a lot of stuff at that time. 
partially because of their body rhythm, but also because they've been so distracted during the day. And so that's when a lot of that stuff tends to come to the surface. And then also other strong emotions, right, that can drive um, anxiety, frustration, all of those things we know, excitement, all these things we know make it really difficult to settle and, and to sink into sleep. So you mentioned how light suppresses the melatonin. Melatonin helps people fall asleep. Say you want a team wanted to go to bed at midnight, make the numbers mm-hmm. easy. When should they ideally get off the screen so the melatonin isn't decreased and they can actually get a good night's sleep? How far advanced should they get away from the technology? So typically you're going to hear one to two hours. And yeah. if we're thinking what's really ideal, you know, three to five hours, because that's kind of when we know that. Um, melatonin is rising three to five hours before sleep onset. But if you tell a team to put away their electronics, even one to two hours beforehand, it's just not going to happen. So this is actually more the work that I do is it's not so much about what needs to happen, rather what's going to work, right? And so if I say that meeting with the team for the first time, they're probably going to shut down and not want to really hear much of what I say. It's not going to be helpful for them. And so my answer to that question of how early should the electronics be put away is what do you think is realistic right now? Mm -hmm. Right. And it might be that putting away electronics is just not realistic at all for some teens. It is the fact that electronics are really hard to turn away from for lots of reasons, right? They're built to be addictive, right? Built to draw us back in. It's stuff that's interesting. I mean, as an adult, I find it really difficult to turn away from my phone too. But then there's also a couple of other things that I think are often really driving that difficulty putting away phones. So we talked about how in the teen years, they are they are built to be seeking out connection from their peers. And so asking them to step away from that just is really not meeting them where they are. And then the other thing is that oftentimes electronics are serving a purpose. So for many of the teens that I meet with, they'll tell me that if they put away their phone or they turn off Netflix, they get flooded with worries or they get flooded with a really busy mind. And so for them, it makes a lot of sense in the moment to be staying off their electronics and it can feel really invalidating I think, for adults to say, just put away your phone. Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing is that they've tried it before. A lot of teens have said, I've tried to put away my phone and it doesn't make a difference. And some, oftentimes I think that's because they are doing it at a time when their body doesn't have potential for sleep. So it's not going to be helpful anyways, mm-hmm. or there's just other stuff that's driving why they can't settle. Right. All those other blockers that I talked about. Yeah. So it's a bit more of a complicated answer. And I've really moved away from getting, giving any one number in terms of when people should put away their phones. No, it's realistic and it's on the money. Thank you. How about you mentioned food? Say you ate right before you tried to go to sleep. How does that affect your sleep? Say a bunch of teenagers go to Wendy's at midnight and they load up on Wendy's and within 45 minutes, they're trying to go to sleep. How does that affect everything? Yeah. So, I mean, there's what, like you said, there's what you're eating. So certain foods are going, are going to be more alerting, particularly like sugary foods, junk foods, things like that. But then yes, having a big meal right before you're sleeping is going to disrupt your sleep quality as well. Now with sugar, actually, is that a wives tale or real that sugar will wake you up? It definitely will give you that initial burst of energy. So yeah. Gotcha. So not only is it the screen time, it's the food. Now you mentioned melatonin. How effective are supplements? What's the science on that? I say someone's like, I'm going to take the melatonin you find at CBS or Rite Aid. Mm -hmm. How effective is that? Yeah. So melatonin, the studies that have been done have not actually penned out in terms of it being very helpful 
you know, as a, as a sleep aid, um, where it has been shown, there is a little bit of research in the pediatric population for kids with ADHD and neurodevelopmental disorders. And so there might be some rationale for using it there. Anecdotally, some people do find it helpful. So my, my typical approach is that if somebody comes to see me and they're on melatonin and it's made a really big difference, I don't necessarily tell them to stop it, but it's not my practice to recommend melatonin as a sleep agent. The way in which I will use it is um, more as what we call a chronobiotic. So the way in which melatonin works in the body just normally is that it typically rises in about three to five hours before bed, um, before sleep onset and then triggers sleep um, at a later time. And so sometimes in certain situations, and this, this doesn't always work, you need to have other things happening at the same time. Sometimes I'll introduce a little bit of low dose melatonin, but timed much earlier in the evening mm -hmm. um, and at a much lower dose than what many people take. So at a dose where you're actually not getting any sedation from it, you're not really feeling any different actually when you take it. Mm -hmm. So that is typically my practice in terms of melatonin. And I do always try to even out the conversation because I think there's this very prevalent story around melatonin that it's natural and benign. And I, that's not necessarily the case. It isn't a hormone. And for whatever reason, it's something that we can buy very easily. It's not regulated in Canada where I live, but it is a hormone and it does have, it does have impacts on other systems. So it has impacts on the immune system and the reproductive system. We don't really have the studies to know what the long-term impacts are, but I will caution people, especially when they're getting to higher doses, that it's not completely, it's not necessarily without harm. Right. So it's not just a, an add-on. And uh, I think if you're going to be using it, you really have to be weighing the risks and benefits. So melatonin isn't this harmless placebo-like thing, take as much as you want. So that's something that you have to proceed with caution. That's something that's not innocuous. Yeah, that's the conversation I'll have. I'm, I'm never dogmatic about it, kind of black and white about it, because yeah. I understand that it can play a role for certain people. Role. But yes, that's, okay. yeah. How about, so we mentioned that maybe a three-step improvement process that teens can do for sleep. One, don't go to bed too early. Like build up that sleep potential. How do you find that time? Is that trial and error? Let's just say you had a teenager that just goes to bed at 1.30 in the morning. Mm -hmm. They have their, their routine. They play sports. They hang out with their friends online. Uh, they're on their phone. And next thing you know, they're it's 1.30 and that's when they fall asleep each night and they love to sleep to 10 in the morning. That's their mm -hmm. schedule. Is that something that needs to be tweaked, fixed, or is that just like, let them go? Like, is that just your typical teenager? How would you... Yeah. So there, there's kind of what the baseline or what the, you know, the baseline body clock. And then there is the fact that we can, we can really shift the timing of our clock as well. So I'd say, uh, you know, fairly typical, it's different for every team, but a fairly typical timing of the body clock, you know, without the outside influence of electronics and other things is probably around kind of 12-ish to 9 a.m. But mm -hmm. then you probably know of lots of teens where their bodies are more on a schedule where they want to sleep between 2 a.m. and 10 a.m. or even mm -hmm. much later. I saw, you know, during the height of the pandemic, many teens were completely reversed. And so they were sleeping during the day and then up all night. So in terms of being able to determine that, like you want to determine what is happening right now. And oftentimes there are little cues. You can get a sense of if left unchecked, when they'll naturally wake up, when they, the earliest typically that they tend to get sleepy. So those are clues in terms of the current timing of the sleep. There are things that you can do to advance the timing of the sleep as well. 
So that's one part of it, though. There's the body clock, but there's also understanding when the body will have built up enough drive for sleep. Mm -hmm. So that's more an issue of um, how long have you been awake and how physically active have you been? So there's the two things working at once that really determine when your body is going to be ready for sleep. And I call that the starting line for sleep because that's Mm -hmm. just kind of the earliest you can expect to be ready for sleep. But then there's all the sleep blockers, right, that can keep you from being able to wind down and push you past your that even when your body's ready for sleep, you still may not be able to sleep until later. Getting ready for the show, I got a question from one of the parents I'm friends with. Their kids get up really early for their sport. Their sport's like 5.30 in the morning. They have to go to practice. And then they go from 5.30, like say they have to school time. And then they come home and they're exhausted because they did, they did practice in the morning. They did school, maybe practice afternoon. They want to take a nap around like 6, 7 o'clock. They fall asleep for an hour. Then they're up and they're rearing to go to 2 o'clock in the morning. So is that mm-hmm. nap beneficial or detrimental? That nap that you have to take. So it, it, they grinded, they worked hard, they did the school, they did maybe two practices, they had to get up like five, which is definitely not a, a normal teen schedule. Is that nap good or bad? Yeah. And sorry, I was going to say, I'm being really annoying because my answers are all going to be great. Cool. <laughs> so the good aspect is yes, they're catching up on some sleep, right? That they really need. And it makes a lot of sense in the moment to be taking a nap. The potential downside is that if that becomes a pattern and then they're not getting to bed until much later, or they're getting into bed and they're lying there awake for many hours, and then that fuels insomnia, then that can become a problem. Like that pattern of getting into regular naps can become a problem, but it's not for every teen, right? Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to understand how the nap, the downsides of the nap and how that might be fueling things. For most of the people that I see, most of the teens that I see, I don't encourage naps. Right. I I encourage them to, I don't, I don't because most of the teens I see have insomnia, but some teens who don't have insomnia, who are still able to sleep at night, or they just have one day where, for example, they have to wake up early, then they take it, you know, they catch up on sleep by having a nap. They anticipate that that night, they probably are not going to get to bed until later, Mm -hmm. but then the next day they kind of reset things, right. They start to get back to a regular schedule. Mm -hmm. Then that's, there's not so much cost to that nap. And I think it's fine. So yeah, it's about understanding what's the downside and does it outweigh the, the mm-hmm. benefit of the, in the moment of having a nap. Yeah. One of the things I heard you recommend, I believe in the first episode, episode 10, is this where when they can't fall asleep and you don't want to just lie there in bed because then becomes a place to hang out, not to sleep. You always say create another space, like a comfortable mm-hmm. space that's not your bed where you literally have to get up and leave. And it's so it, yeah. you're, you're not association. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So one of the most powerful things that drives sleep difficulties is that unhelpful association with the bed. And we've talked about why teens are so set up to develop that unhelpful association. Part of it is that mismatch between when they're trying to sleep and then also when they're ready for sleep. But also a big part of it is that most teens love their beds, right? That's kind of where they're comfortable, where they have privacy. So I found in my experience when I work with people with insomnia and they're sleeping better and I ask them why, they always say that addressing that one factor of that unhelpful association with the bed, that was always the thing that made the biggest difference. The way that you do that is essentially you have to train yourself to kind of unpair bed from being in awake mode and ideally pair it more with being in like easy to settle sleep mode. And the way that you do that is that you stay out of bed. You don't get into bed until you're sleepy. If you can't fall asleep and you're in bed, you get out of bed. You don't return to your sleepy. Same thing in the middle of the night. You don't want to linger in bed after you wake up. So really what you're doing, you're just really reserving bed for sleep. And you're trying to spend very limited amount of time awake in bed. So really powerful intervention, but very, very hard to do consistently. 
right? Especially if you don't have a place to go. And so to really have any shot of being able to benefit from that strategy, that's where I find having somewhere set up ahead of time that's going to be just as appealing as a bed is a it's a game changer. You often need to have an alternative. Otherwise, it just isn't going to happen and, and you're not going to be able to benefit from it. For that third spot, let's just say you can't go to sleep, even adult or teenager. You know what? I'm going to go downstairs into a comfortable couch, turn the light on mm-hmm. and read a book. Not Don't turn the TV on, mm-hmm. no phone. I just have an old school book and I'm going to read it. Now that walking down the stairs, that little bit of exercise, and you turn the light on, which is, I guess it's stim, which we spoke of a few minutes ago. Is that mm-hmm. still better than laying in bed? Movement kind of wakes you up a little bit. The light will wake you up mm-hmm. a little bit but you're in that third spot. So it's kind of a combination of good and bad. So would that be a net positive or negative to do something like that? I think it depends, but no, it's, I agree. It's not ideal. So what I typically recommend is yes, you want to have a kind of low stimulation place to be. You want to have other things to do. So you're not defaulting to going onto your phone, which is really, really common mm-hmm. in teens specifically. I actually recommend that that spot be in the room. Yeah. yeah. In adults, the recommendation is actually often outside of the room because sometimes just the whole room can be, mm. can become associated with that kind of tense, difficult to settle state. Yeah. But I, I find there's more success when it's in the room for teens, both because again, they still want, they want and need privacy, right? That's just kind of the stage that they're at. But also it's, if it's easy to get to, and you don't have to walk too far, it's much more likely in the moment that you're actually going to get out of bed. And then also when you are in your cozy nook or your other spot and you feel that sleepiness coming on, you want to be able to get into bed fairly quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So you want it to be easy to get to and then easy to get back into bed from. Sure. Because if, for example, you're in the basement and you're walking up two flights of stairs, you're right. You can just kind of miss that window. Yeah. It's almost like a chair, like a nice little comfy chair in the corner of your room, a beanbag, another like station where you literally have to get out of bed. Exactly. But you walk to, that's very cool. When we last talked, I would have put together a podcast episode on that, the Find the podcast, but I actually since have updated a lot of my resources and have a guide on how to set up that I call it a cozy nook, right? That other spot. Yeah. And part of that guide is also setting up stuff to do. So you're not defaulting to your phone. So I call that a sleep kit. So mm-hmm. that is something that's available freely on my website. And actually, I'm soon going to be giving a workshop on three simple steps to start with. And this is a big one. This is a big one that I find most people have to start with. Otherwise, it's really difficult to get traction on the other stuff. Yeah. If you haven't set up that spot and you don't have other things to do when you're unable to sleep. That's for adults and teens. Both groups can benefit from that extra spot that create Mm -hmm. that other space. Just to recap what you said, you're going to do like a three-step improvement, improve your sleep process. One, don't go to bed too early. Make sure you build up that sleep potential. That's the first thing you said. Secondly, create that mm-hmm. other space. Don't just lay in bed and it's not a hangout spot. Get up. Ideally, it's in the same room, a, a comfortable little nook in the corner where you can build up that sleep drive. You can get up and, and very quickly get back to bed and don't lose it by walking up two or three flights of stairs. Then the third yep. one I heard you mention a couple of times, I'll just put it number three, that light management, like making sure that stim's not there, the computer screen, right? So to get off your phone. Yeah. And actually, I forgot to mention before when we were talking about light, I was saying to you, you know, many teens are just not going to put away screens. That's not where they are yet. Maybe eventually they'll get there, but kind of where they are typically at the beginning is 
they're going to, most teens I see are just don't think it's realistic. So I think the other important thing to know is that there's lots of other things that you can do to reduce the impact of light without necessarily having to put away the devices. Mm -hmm. So that might range anywhere from just turning off unnecessary lights in the evening, right? We, we often don't, aren't even aware of how much light yeah. we're saturated with, so true. but turning off unnecessary lights, you can use things like blue light blocking glasses, filters, um, things like looking at a screen that's further away as opposed to something that's right in front of you, like a phone or a tablet. So there's all of these harm reduction strategies that even in and of themselves can make a really big difference too. So those blue light glasses, I think my daughter even bought one, like a Justice, like a really like you know, one of their stores at the mall. Like, do they really yeah. work putting those blue light glasses? Are they legit? Yeah. Yeah, they do. Really? They do. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's- so I, I, I recommend them. Okay. Very yeah. cool. So maybe the blue light glasses is a quick little fix too as well. That is really cool. So we got basically build up your sleep potential. Don't go to bed too early. Create another space. Light management, those blue light glasses. How about wrapping up here, Kara? If everybody listening could take one thing away from this whole conversation about sleep and teens, what would it be? So the one of the most common things that I hear is that I've tried everything and nothing works. That's a really, really common barrier I find for many of the people that I work with and also their parents too. And so I guess what I would like to leave your audience with is that we have a lot of really great strategies, but oftentimes they don't work because maybe the, the specific way that they've been implemented hasn't quite been right, or the right things haven't come together. Or another big one that I find is that people are often trying to implement you know, step four, five, six, but they haven't started with the basics. And we kind of touched on some of the basics today, but that is often a reason why other strategies don't tend to work. So for example, we talked about the idea that in putting away phones, a lot of people will say that doesn't work for them. And it might be that it's just that it wasn't the right time for their body to sleep. And so that's why it didn't work. Obviously that's a helpful thing to do eventually, but it really is like putting together a piece of the puzzle. And so I always come back to the idea that you have to just start at the beginning. And in particular for teens, that's really important because they've got a lot more working against them. And so I'm really glad we touched on those, the three things. I didn't have a chance today to go into more of the specifics. And so that's actually what that workshop that I mentioned to you is about, that I'm going to go through in more detail. How can you actually make these first three steps really work for you so that you actually can access all of these wonderful benefits of sleep that we talked about earlier? And that workshop will so then you know have other resources and things mm -hmm. like that. And I actually already have one that's pre-recorded that people okay. can watch at any time. But I would say almost universally, that's where it kind of everybody has to start. So start at the beginning and know that one size does not fit all. Make it realistic. Yeah. Fit it to the person. It's not going to be the ideal world. And it's not black or white. There's a lot of gray areas. There's a lot of give and take and experimentation to see what works for that particular person at that particular stage of their either teenage or adult years. It, it's very individualized what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it is, except for I would say that these three steps and doing them properly is pretty much, in my experience, always where people have to start. That's where they always have to start those three steps. That's yeah. Great. You often just can't get much further if these things haven't been done, right? Like if you're still getting really bright light in the middle of the night, you're still not going to be able to sleep well, even if you're doing all of these other things. Yeah. Or if you are, like I said, like the rest of your sleep hygiene can be perfect, but if you've still got this really negative association with bed, mm -hmm. then you're still probably not going to be able to sleep well. Or you can become a master at you know, mindfulness or all of these other strategies to help relax your body. But if you're trying to sleep three hours before your body wants to sleep, you're still not going to be able to sleep well.
So again, I think it's just kind of coming back to that analogy of think of it like a puzzle. And then kind of once you you understand that puzzle and you're able to put those things together, then you can kind of unlock all of the, the benefits and you can see very quick, significant change. That is, I think, about as great as a spot as any to wrap up. You mentioned you have this online session coming up. If people are looking to find you and your work and the courses online, where can they find you? I think the pro- probably the easiest place is to go to my website. So that's decodeinsomnia.com. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all under Decode Insomnia, except for LinkedIn, where I'm under my name. So decodeinsomnia.com on Instagram, on Facebook, LinkedIn, it's your name. I think you're on TikTok now, maybe. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. Yes. I was kind of challenged to go on to TikTok. That's ironic because that's a sleep killer. <laughs> to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, just kind of experimenting with how to share this information in a way that is going to be digestible. So yeah, I have a few TikTok videos, but in sales, you you go where your customers are. So it may not be a you would go naturally towards, but if your customers are there or the people you're trying to serve are there, that's where you gotta go. And if they're on if teens are on TikTok, you gotta go you get you have to find a way to connect with them there. That's great. I will link all of these in the show notes. Dr. Caro, thank you for joining us being one of the few guests coming on for the second time on the podcast. I love the information and just so helpful every time we speak. I just love how tactically you are. And I love how you're not so absolute. You're like, this may work, this may not work. I just love how you have nuance to your answers where it's based in science, but you individualize it to the person. So that's just so awesome to see. So thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge. Thank you. It was a pleasure awesome. to chat today. All right. Take care. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.